Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. John 14, picking up in verse 15, John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And here's Jesus speaking. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Would you pray with me? Lord, we look to you again. Please, through the words of Christ, Do the work of God 
in our hearts. Let not our hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Help us to trust in you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. <clears throat> so, I, uh, I like amazing world factoids like the longest road in the world runs from Cape Town, Africa to Magadan, I don't know how to say it, Russia, Magadan, whatever, okay, which is basically from the bottom of the globe to the top of the globe. It's 13,911 miles long. It passes through 17 countries, six time zones, and all seasons of the year at once. If you walked it for eight hours a day, you would finish it on day 561. That's more than a year and a half. It's a long road. Uh, another interesting biblical factoid is that before followers of Jesus were called Christians, you might know this, they were known as those belonging to the way. Belonging to the way. Which implies they lived greatly on the food that Jesus gives us in a chapter like John 14. I am the way. Let not your hearts be troubled as you go along the way. Uh, the, 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 these first Christians, these disciples here, they didn't ultimately peter out. And neither did Peter. Uh, whatever befell them, they identified irrevocably with Jesus. They belonged to the way. They stayed with the way. They preached the way. They lived out the way. They died for the way. And the question is not only why, but how. The why, I think, is rather obvious. They really knew the gospel to be true. But how? How? I mean, we've seen Peter's devotion to the way in his own strength. It's not much. We've seen their resolve. They're all going to forsake him at the cross. And in their resolve, I think we've gotten a pretty fair view of our own resolve to follow Jesus. It's rather embarrassing, really. So how? Because apparently, and truth be told, belonging to the way, given all its inherent troubles, is a naturally impossible task. Like being told to make that journey from Cape Town to Magadan in a single day, or without food, or without water, or without any of the essential equipment that's necessary for accomplishing that kind of journey. If you don't have those things, you're not going to belong to the way for very long. So, how did they make it along the way that is Christ and following Christ? How did they endure in heartfelt obedience to the Word of Jesus Christ in this variously troubling world? And how will we? Well, as we'll see, I think only by adherence, you think about ad an adhesive, right? Only by adherence to the supernatural helps of our ascended Lord. Okay? Where we see a people proof positively loving Christ for life, we should be absolutely stunned and amazed because you're witnessing right there 
a miracle of God. You're witnessing even the ongoing activity of the now enthroned King of glory. That's wonderful. So let's come to verse 15 and consider first the test of our love for Jesus. The test of our love for Jesus, which is obedience to Jesus. We're in the context of helping the troubled Christian heart, I hope you remember. And in it, Jesus now continues. Verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Beloved, we're called to love a person. We're called to love a person, no less real than the person sitting next to you right now. And really, it feels like a bit of an indictment that we have to be commanded to love a person like Jesus. I mean, what a person to have to love. Why wouldn't we love him? He's a perfect person. (laughs) That may be why we don't. He's a perfect person, mirroring the very heart of God to us, ever-loving sinners like us, even to the point of death and even death on a cross. He is gentle and lowly. He is truth and He is grace. He has died, but He's risen. He's Lord and He's Savior. What is not most admirable in Him? What is not most excellent and, and lovely in Christ? As the song goes, there are indeed 10,000 charms and probably 10 billion more beside in Jesus. We know the arresting power of beauty. If you get caught in it, it's almost like getting caught in gravity. And well, nothing in all creation is more beautiful or drawing than Jesus. If our hearts are contrary to that, It's not Christ who's at fault, but our weak, infallible hearts. Jesus, you'll find out, is the highlight of heaven. And so He should be the chief love of our lives here in this world as well. It is a peculiar thing, I want you to know, to be called to love our Lord and other religions. The call may be to serve a God or fear a God or respect a God or whatever, do any number of things for a God, but hardly ever to have kindred affections for a God. And even within Judaism, where they're called to love the Lord their God, even there, the notion while held was hardly ever realized in the Bible, was it? Hardly ever. And regardless, here in our text, you see that the call is not simply to love God, but to love Jesus. Similar to the argument last week, the call is really to vital Christianity. If you have no love for Jesus, you have no love for God, no matter what you profess. Go back and Sit in John chapter 8 later today. Jesus says there, If God were your Father, you would love Me. So also in our verse 15, If you love Me. So again, at the Father's will, Jesus is disclosing Himself as no less than God. What a person to be called to love. So we've got to 
learn how to cultivate true love to Jesus. We've got to have it, we've got to grow it, and then we've got to show it, right? Peter loved Jesus. But Jesus still had to come to Peter and have Peter reaffirm his love for him to the measure of his denials three times. So it wasn't that Peter did not love Jesus. It was just that his love for Jesus needed to what? It needed to grow, which Jesus knows. And if you're wondering then how we're to cultivate it, just hang tight, we're going to come to it. By the way, just now, what we're really needing to see is that Jesus doesn't leave this love for Him. He does not leave this in, in the abstract. He doesn't leave it to our own subjective feelings. He neither leaves it in the realm of mere profession. He doesn't leave it in the realm of mere theology. Just know a lot about the Bible or whatever. He doesn't leave it even in the realm of habit. We come to church and we go and all this kind of thing. If I might say it this way, Jesus makes it broadly specific. What is the most certain test of genuine love to Jesus? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You'll keep my commands. You'll keep my word. It's being obedient to the word of Christ. Careful now. From the heart. He's not interested in lip service. So feel this now. We never lay aside His Word. We never lay aside how He has called us to live without also laying aside what? Love to Christ. In denying Jesus, Peter, for example, chose in a certain moment to love something more than Jesus. Even though, in his heart of hearts, he did love Jesus most. But so long as we have any, any regard to self, situations will come about in which our love to Christ will be greatly challenged. Our love to Christ is going to be greatly troubled. And I'd wager that's a reality that troubles us more day by day than every blue moon. Whether by specific temptations to sin, or just by general opposition for obedience. And this is why our love to Christ and its steady development is so critical. We'll see it depicted next week. But love to Christ is the life in our obedience to Christ. Love to Christ is the life in our obedience to Christ. It's the sap running through the, the branch that makes the branch pliable, not easily broken when pressure is applied to it. Okay? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If, you see that? Our love for Jesus is conditional for our enduring obedience to Jesus. Even then as our enduring obedience to Jesus is evidential, it's proof that we really do love Jesus. Dear ones, is that how we view? Is that how we navigate? Is that how we attack temptations to sin?
Is that how we approach worldviews, ideals, certain ethics that would diverge us from the truth of Christ that we find in the Bible? Is that how we frame any opposition that the devil might hurl at us for our identification with Jesus? Do we view that as a real-time decision to act or not to act upon our love for the most love-worthy person? Are we prepared to love Jesus most? Dear ones, God sent His Son into the world not just to forgive a people, but to free a people. Not just to justify a people, but to sanctify a people. To purify for Himself a people who are devoted to His works, it says in Titus. A people that that while the world is being obedient to sin, they are obedient to Scripture. That is the great heart exam. That is the test of love to Christ. Obedience to Christ. Do we bear His resemblance? If so, praise God. What a mercy. But we must prepare for that. This world has never much liked the resemblance of Jesus. Heartfelt obedience to Christ will be met by its share of troubles. And and often foremost within our own hearts. And again, as Jesus knows this, His remaining words in our passage are a concerted effort to make us hopeful not in ourselves, but in Him about that kind of heartfelt obedience. So, He gives His disciples several test helps. Are you familiar with those as a teacher or as students? Okay, test helps. Jesus knows the ask here is above our natural properties, inclinations, and abilities. And we should thank God for this, that He never asks us to be obedient in our own strength, but in the strength that He graciously supplies. And if you've ever wondered about that strength, the verses we're about to go through here, they're a good place to stop and sit a while, simmer, and get us going. We're to first consider Jesus' answered prayer. You look at verse 16. You see in verse 16 how having asked us to pray and pray really, really boldly to Him, He too, apparently, is going to be given to prayer and to a specific request. Upon His ascension, I think we can say, He's going to ask the Father as a sign of gospel vindication to give His people another helper, to give His people another person, and that person is the Holy Spirit. And so against their anxieties, Jesus thinks this more advantageous for them than if He should stay with them. You ever thought about that? More advantageous for Him to go than to remain. And He begins here to tell them why. Right? The Son's ministry, the Son's ministry, was to come and to be with us and to do all those gospel things 
and then go in order to send a person who in coming would not only be with us, but as he says, into verse 17, what? In us. I'm not sure how well we grasp that the goal of Christ's ministry was to a great degree God in Christ getting in us by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Talk about assuaging our anxieties. Jesus departs. That's why they're so troubled, isn't it? Jesus departs, but why does He depart? He departs to indwell. He's gone from us to get in us. That's the main result of the Spirit's indwelling. As the Son manifests the Father to us while also initiating the Spirit's kind of helping ministry, the Spirit, no less God than Father or Son, brings both of them into us by His indwelling. That's why He's called the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ in various other places in the Bible. And here, with respect to the Holy Spirit's ministry, He's called the Spirit of what? Truth. He is why anyone will ever endure in heartfelt obedience to the Word of Christ. Do you see in verse 17 how the world has no inkling of the Spirit, no eyes to see Him, no receptors to receive Him? Why is that? Well, it's because liars despise the truth. And, by nature, liars is what we are. It takes a new birth to love Jesus. Do we understand what a, a miracle it is that any one of us would love Christ and love the truth of the Gospel? Sometimes I think we take that for granted, especially if we've been a Christian for a while. We may have lost the wonder of a people who are devoted to Jesus. A people locked into the truth in an erroneous world. A people bound to the Word of God. A people who are indwelled by God. Right here in our text, really for the first time, I think, is the great implication of what? We, the church, are the temple of God. We're heaven on earth made visible. We're an embassy of the ascended Lord. And to make this realized and to make it obvious is the ministry of the Spirit of truth. He's the one who converts us to the truth. He's the one who recenters us around the truth, who causes us to discern truth from error. He's the one who brings us to love the truth. He it is who unites our new hearts to this ancient word, such that in this ancient word we hear the voice of Christ in it and would sooner die than deny it. He it is who helps us stay true to the truth. And with this answered prayer, an answered prayer, we're also promised Jesus' adoptive presence. Picking up in verse 18. 
If you look there at verse 18, you see that Jesus tells them, I will not leave you. But then we always need to pay attention to the qualifiers, right? I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. And from our immediate context, I think he means again that he's going to come to us by the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, verse 19, that in short order, the world will see him no more, but that his disciples will. And from what follows, some understand him to be talking about you know, his post-resurrection appearances to his disciples, which absolutely occurred and is a fine interpretation. No doubt, his resurrection is part of the process here, right? Because I live, he says there, you also will live. It's just that the final direction of the verses here seem to me to point a little more toward the activity of the ascended Christ by the Holy Spirit. But either way, no huge deal. The end result seems to be the same. We will know in our hearts by the direct and ongoing ministry of God in Christ by the Spirit that we are really children of God. That He has not left us as orphans. That perhaps we know, as Paul calls Him in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit of Adoption. Another title for the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Adoption. Bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God and thus we are heirs of God and heirs with Christ provided what? That we suffer with Him. Another way to put that is we endure troubles for Him. Right? So that we inherit glory. Is there not something similar here? Jesus tells them that in that day, again, I lean toward the outpouring of the Spirit, Acts chapter 2, their hearts will be assured of something remarkable, something even they, His disciples at this time, seem to lack. By the Spirit, they will know that Christ is in the Father and that they are in Christ and that Christ is in them. In other words, at that time, their own souls will become aware that they are children of God by nature, both inside and thus what? Outside. Yeah. You see what Jesus returns to in verse 21? It's with what He began. This love that our obedience to His Word makes clear. Hear this now. Children of God resemble the Son of God in our obedience to the Word of God. Again, do you recall John 8, verse 47? Whoever is of God, Jesus says, whoever is born of God, whoever is a child of God, hears effectually the words of God. The reason they were rejecting Jesus is because they weren't born of God. To encourage us as children, to encourage our obedience, Jesus tells them that such love to Him will be greeted with a most settling assurance and awareness of the smile of the Father. To love Jesus faithfully is to assure ourselves on the Word of Christ that we are and will be loved by Jesus and by Jesus' Father. Our obedience is not meriting love, 
but it is displaying that we are in a relationship of love with our Lord and our God. As one put it, it's a love-calls-to-love kind of transaction. That's what's going on in the Christian life. And a peculiar manifestation of Christ is attached to it. You see in verse 21. And this is what piques the curiosity of non-Iscariot Judas. Right? He asked Jesus, verse 22, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus' answer in verses 23 and 24 is really interesting. Where Jesus' love has proven by submission to His Word, there God in Christ is manifest to us and in us and consequently out from us. There heaven is seen to be in a people before that people is in heaven. Right? Christ and the Father, they're going to come and make their home in us. Do you remember earlier in John 14, Jesus says, I'm going to go there and make a home for you. But in some sense, He's also going to come here and make a home in us. So again, where Jesus is loved, and we're being submissive to His Word, there you're seeing heaven in the people before the people are in heaven. There the true family of God exists in a verifiable way. Abiding fidelity to all Christ's Word, forming as it will a holy people in the world, but distinct from it, is Jesus showing up, manifesting Himself in His grace and in His truth and in His Spirit. Listen, dear ones, I know a lot in American Christianity is allergic to authority and expectations. But I'll just tell you, just be honest with you here, it'll be impossible to follow Jesus well while incubating that kind of allergy. King Jesus has expectations of us. He expects those He's indwelled to be at least a rough sketch of Him. What people are seeing when they see you and us bringing our lives humbly into joyful submission to Jesus is nothing less than Jesus at work. They're seeing the adoptive presence of Christ in a people. So I want you to hear this. A word-centered church is God's most spiritually potent kind of witness. You combine that with the simple assurance of our own hearts as children of God, and will that more missional impulse not also further help us in the trials attending heartfelt obedience to Jesus? It should. But now we can add to that test help with another. You look at verse 25. We see there Jesus' authoritative pen is what I've called it. You see He comes again to the helping Holy Spirit and reveals one of the Holy Spirit's all-critical ministries, which is the inspiration, the production, the illumination, I'll just go ahead and say, of the New Testament. Okay? He tells these who would be apostles, who would write or personally inform or put their direct stamp on the writing of Matthew to Revelation, that they would have divine help in that. The Holy Spirit 
sent by the Father in my name, will teach you all things, he says, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Do you think that would prove important for knowing, loving, and obeying Jesus? Having everything Jesus most essentially said, brought to mind, put to parchment, exposited and applied in the context of local churches under the administration of the Holy Spirit of truth. Do you think that'll be helpful? I think so. Before it's done, Jesus is telling them, they'll be helped to author the authoritative word of Christ. And do note this, that this work of the Spirit is not to say new things, but to recollect Christ's things. He's not dispensing with the words of Jesus, he's reasserting them. And in league with Jesus' own activity, he's expounding them in a variety of settings for you and me, for us. So it's certainly helpful to know, isn't it, that we really do have the Word of God to love and obey. But that's not all. That's not all. It's one glorious thing to have the Word of God. But it's still another, don't we know it? To love the Word of God. To understand the Word of God. To believe the Word of God. To be submissive to the Word of God. To be correctable by the Word of God. To be comforted by the Word of God. To be sanctified by the Word of God. And that throughout your life. And that also is a ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. He illumines the text of Scripture for us. He's the one who causes us to see so as to love, so as to walk with Jesus. So, let me just ask this. Have you, have you ever asked the Holy Spirit to help you love the Word of Jesus like this? I'll just tell you, it's usually my prayer as I sit down each week to study, to preach. Oh Lord, so blind. Help me to see. Open these dimmed eyes. Help me to see usually the truth, the person, the beauty, the glory of Christ. Uh, reveal it to my heart and bring it to mind. And put it on my tongue so that I will just go freely to this church and and into their hearts. <laughs> Take them captive by what you've given us here. J.C. Ryle puts it to us like this. He says, are we sensible of spiritual ignorance? Do we desire? Now that's an awaking word. Do we desire to understand more clearly than we do the doctrines of the gospel? The doctrines of Scripture. Do we find our memory of spiritual things defective? Do we complain that though we read and hear, we seem to lose things as fast as we gain them? He says, let us then pray for the help of the teaching Spirit. It's His office to illuminate your soul. 
for our troubles on account of his word, and for our troubles in this word. The alighting author of the word indwells you, Christian. A person can tell you a lot more about a book they wrote than we can know by simply reading that book. We have the authoritative pen of Christ and the Holy Spirit to lead us in it. So you you feel that you're going nowhere fast for Jesus. You think that you're slow in the Scriptures and slower still to love them and obey Him. Listen, do not settle right there. Don't buy into this lie. Well, it just is what it is. It doesn't make much sense to me. You Have a helper. He lives in you. By the mercy of Christ. And, picking up in verse 27, you and I, we further have Jesus' actual peace to go with it all. Which is so helpful for the troubled Christian heart, isn't it? It's distinct from the peace of the world. It's an actual peace. An actual peace. You see, we look for peace like crazy, don't we? The whole world knows things are not as they ought to be. But they know no way to actualize the peace that we all desire. Uh, If we aren't seeking it by war and subjugation and fear-mongering, we're seeking it in Buddhist meditation, pantheistic oneness, self-fulfillment, chance of serenity now, solitary confinement, better gut health, or if you're like me, just regular pumpkin spice lattes. It gives me lots of peace in the moment. Problem is, none of that gives us a lasting peace above every troubling circumstance. For Christ. The world's peace is at best situational and temporary. People may shout at us, peace, peace, but there is no actual peace. Because the only actual peace there is, a peace that's sovereign over every circumstance of your life, is the soul's peace with the true and living God. There's an old uh, church father, his name was Augustine or Augustine, whichever way you want to do it. He once confessed this. He says to the Lord, you've made yourself, I'm sorry, you've made us for yourself. You've made us for yourself. And so our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Which is the rest, the peace that only Jesus can give the soul. It's a peace that's rooted in the joyful promise of established fact. Jesus, having died and risen, has now returned, verse 28, to the Father. And you see that interesting add-on there, for the Father is greater than I. We know from what we've covered in John all the way through the first Uh, almost 14 chapters now, that by that Jesus does not mean that He's less than God. What He means 
is that there is a sense in which he subjected himself to the Father in his incarnation, right? And he's now returning to his former glory, we're going to see in John chapter 17, with his task accomplished, achieved, and he's going to hand over the kingdom to the Father. It's done. (laughs) And if they had gotten that and loved him as they were supposed to, the news of his departure would have been cause for joy, he says. Why? Because it means they need not fear his return. Jesus has made their peace with God. And for that matter, they needn't fret or fear anything that might come upon them as they walk with Jesus. In every circumstance, whether it's life-threatening or just gut-wrenching, nothing in all the world can reintroduce enmity between you and me and God. Christ is our peace. And will that not steady our steps behind Jesus? Will that not help us? So our reputation is taken. We're truly known by God. So our name is smeared. We're named with Jesus. So our opportunities in this world are restricted. We're enlisted by Christ. So our persons are abandoned. We'll never be forsaken by God. (laughs) So our lives are, are mocked as a loss. We're united to Him who sits on the throne. So our obedience is maligned by the world. We're heirs of heaven. So our world is tumultuous. We have peace with God always because of Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled, nor let them be afraid. Everything's going to turn out okay for you and me. To put it mildly. So you just go on ahead in heartfelt obedience to Jesus. He's taken full care of the repercussions of your sins. Which He can do. And only He can do. Because He never sinned. Last test help here. Jesus' attesting piety. His godliness. We're in verses 30 and 31 now where Jesus again clarifies an intention of the cross. It might be thought He dies as He does because God was so displeased with Him that He'd horribly sinned, that Satan had actually somewhere along the way overcome Him and that the cross then was the consequence of Jesus being beaten by Satan. And so to clear this up for the whole world, Jesus lays claim to something that no other human being in all history could ever lay claim to. He says, Satan has no claim on me. (laughs) Remarkable. For what it's worth, Jesus has made it such that the same can be said of you if you're in Christ. Talk about his peace. 
But what Jesus is doing is reorienting their perspective on the cross. Satan has nothing that he can pin on Jesus. Jesus is without sin. He was perfectly obedient to God. He is the spotless Lamb of God. Jesus is not crucified, in other words. He's not accursed by God because He lived a devilish life, but because He and He alone lived in the flesh a truly divine life. And the apex of that obedience to God, come to find out, was death. Even death on a cross. It was the righteous suffering for the unrighteous that He might bring us to God. It was, as the verses say, Christ doing as the Father commanded Him. Yes, for our salvation, but also what? That the world, no less His disciples, may know that what? Oh my goodness. I Love the Father. <laughs> this whole thing's about heartfelt obedience. He's the example. Him alone. In the most perfect way. I'm going to the cross that the world may know that I love the Father. That's what it's about. So Jesus, who would know, wants the world to know that God is worthy of the greatest degree of love and obedience that a person could ever offer. He wants us to know that He is worthy even of the cross. Oh my golly! Our love and obedience to Christ is so lame. So unsteady. So easily troubled. So hapless. So resourceless. So Christless. And I would just invite you to weep with me there. Like I did this week in my office, just thinking about it. We can be such babies crying over how hard it is to stay pure and watch our words and hold a stance and remain patient. Woe is me. I just got to crumble and give in. When our eldest brother loved our father and embraced obedience to the point of death on a cross. No sin. Not one. His whole life. Never. God is too glorious for that. You know what this is. It's Hebrews 12, 3 and 4. I know some of y'all have been studying Hebrews. It's Hebrews 12, 3 and 4. The writer there says this. Consider Him. Isn't that what we're doing? Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, 
you have not yet, as he has, resisted to the point of shedding your blood. God, Jesus has shown us, is worthy of heartfelt obedience, even if it costs us our life. Put another way, as a help to it, you lose your life in love for Christ, you will not be finally disappointed. You will be vindicated. Jesus' piety attests to that. Friend, turn from your sins today. Believe in the one who died and who now lives to forever save you from those sins and to reconcile you to God in infinite grace. And beloved, do you, do you see here how the chapter closes? Having laid out his test helps, he says to his disciples what? Rise, let us go. The way, right? Let us go from here. How fitting. As we walk along the way together, we should now know Jesus goes every step with us. We have his answered prayer, Holy Spirit, we have His adoptive presence. We have His authoritative pen. We have His actual peace. We have His attesting piety. So, in the way of heartfelt obedience, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Believe in God. And what else? Believe also in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. I do pray that it would reign now over all our troubles, all our anxieties, all our sorrows, and even the one's future. Root our hearts in your word, this word, we pray in Jesus' name.